Welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. In today's podcast, leading experts Gilles Salles, Nirav Shah, Ulrich Jaeger, and Stephen Ansel discuss the most exciting updates in the field of lymphoma from the EHAR and ICML 2021 meetings, reviewing current data and advances in cellular, antibody, and novel therapies. Hello, my name is uh, Gilles Salles. Uh, I'm a physician at uh, Memorial St. Catherine in uh, New York, where I chair the uh, lymphoma service. Uh, today, we are going to discuss the presentations and update from the uh, recent uh, uh, spring meetings, ASCO, uh, EHA, and ICML. And in order to uh, have this discussion, we have a very distinguished faculty panel with us, with Dr. Steve Ansel from uh, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, uh, Dr. Uli Jäger from uh, uh, Vienna in Austria, and Dr. Nirav Shah from uh, uh, Wisconsin uh, uh, College in uh, Milwaukee. So welcome to all of you. And I think we had a fantastic uh, uh, update on uh, many topics. Actually, it was quite interesting that uh, despite what happened uh, in uh, the last uh, few months or the last uh, 12 months with uh, the COVID pandemic, there were uh, still many advances in our field in uh, uh, lymphoma. So maybe to start with the uh, uh, update that we heard, um, let's focus on uh, uh, immune therapies and more specifically on antibody-based uh, uh, therapies. And I think we had uh, uh, several updates on the field of uh, uh, bispecific antibodies, uh, which seems to be promising drugs in uh, uh, different uh, uh, histologies. So maybe we can uh, uh, start with you, Steve, if you uh, agree. Uh, what were your key messages that you have got from uh, uh, the updated uh, uh, data that we heard during this meeting regarding the uh, uh, use of these uh, uh, new drugs? Yeah, thanks, Gilles. Um, I would say that I think uh, bispecific antibodies are coming into their own. I think that uh, the key message for me around all of these meetings was we're working out how to give this in a safe fashion. We're working out how to give bispecific antibodies and the schedule and the doses, and even whether you can administer subcutaneously, which uh, all of which are proving to be promising. Furthermore, I think the thing that's proving to be promising, we're working out how to manage toxicities because uh, as we're getting to what I think are optimal doses, we're starting to really see some of the uh, immune-mediated effects, the cytokine release type of syndromes and the like. And as we're doing that, I think how to schedule, how to administer, and how to manage those issues, I think, are being achieved in a very efficient fashion. I think what is equally interesting and equally, equally promising is the fact that we're actually seeing very high and very encouraging response rates in very refractory patients. And I think that to me is really the take home message is that in patients, particularly those with large cell lymphoma, particularly those failing transplant and even failing CAR T cell therapy, bispecific antibodies are proving that you can still reinvigorate the immune system or bring the CAR T cells into the mix in a, in a way that's really promising. And I think data that we're seeing shows that somewhere between 25, even to 30% of post-CAR T-cell failure patients are patients who respond to this treatment. So all told, I think bispecific antibodies are really kind of coming into their own at this point. 
Thank you. Dr. Shah, any um, further insight regarding this class of agents? Yeah, I mean, I want to mirror what Steve said. I think we really need to optimize the dosing schedule and, and uh, means of administration and, and excited to see that subcutaneous might be an option for our patients, especially uh, to be able to give these drugs outpatient uh, in a friendly way uh, to the people who need it the most. I think the most exciting thing about these drugs is uh, the efficacy signal we're seeing in this highly refractory population. And what I'm interested and excited to see is where do these drugs place themselves? Uh, are they truly going to be in a CAR refractory population or are these drugs that potentially could compete with CARs um, as, a, some, as a drug off the shelf, you know, without the manufacturing needs, without the high expense associated with CARs uh, that we can give prior to CAR T-cell therapy and will lead to durable responses? I think that's a big question mark here is that durability. Uh, a lot of these patients have been treated on clinical trials. There's eligibility criteria, there's uh, selection bias in that setting. And so I think it'll be interesting as more and more of these studies mature, if we get a sense that are these curative? Uh, and I think that's a big question for me. Thank you. Uli, may, may, may you comment a little bit regarding some of the potential combinations of these uh, uh, antibodies, but also the limitations that were uh, addressed uh, uh, by uh, Nirav and Steve? That's exactly what I wanted to get at. Thank you for the question, Jim. Uh, yeah, so we did see, uh, um, of course, uh, mainly data from monotherapy, uh, but um, particularly for the aggressive lymphomas, it's probably important to combine them. What we've seen is a combination uh, of, for instance, mosinotuzumab with polar um, tuzumab, that uh, did uh, induce higher response rates, even in uh, post-CAR T-cell patients with uh, T-cell activation that was observed. That, I found that quite interesting. And um, it seems that the combination with chemotherapy, where we also saw one or the other abstract, uh, seems to be quite toxic. So, so I, I think that the key issue will probably be uh, will it be applicable to everybody, let's say a bispecific uh, CD20 antibody, um, uh, together with, uh, with CHOP or R-CHOP, uh, or let's say together with JOP? Uh, I'm not so sure. So I think that's where we have to optimize uh, things, maybe combine them with uh, other new drugs, etc. And uh, I'd like to make a, a comment also uh, to what Nirav uh, said. Uh, Particularly in first line, uh, the bispecifics may be better than CARs because uh, we have them ready. And uh, so I, I think we will, we may see a revolution there in, in the first line treatment. Steve, do you, you wanted to make some comments regarding potential combinations, I understand. No, I, I actually would say I just wanted to pick up on something uh, that Narav said, which I think is very important, because as we're thinking about how to place these agents, I do think it's going to be important to see the durability of benefit. And as we look at the combinations, we're really going to need to see that this brings additional cures. I mean, you know, again, that's uh, something we really want to see, but we are seeing tales on some of the immunotherapy cellular approaches where we're seeing a subset of patients where we truly believe those people may be durably in remission, may be cured. But I think we haven't quite seen the same just yet from the, uh, from the bispecifics. And so I think uh, 
we need to watch this space. I, I think it could be there, but I don't know that we actually have the evidence uh, to that. And, and I do think uh, Uli's point about uh, toxicity is also the other thing to watch is that I think combinations uh, are encouraging, but uh, these are agents that uh, you know, have quite substantial toxicity. And I think when we use them earlier and the immune response might actually be more robust, we may actually see more problems than when we, see, when we use them later. Is anyone of you willing to provide to uh, our audience some uh, more specific uh, uh, insight regarding the management of the uh, infusions, uh, reactions, the associated CRS, the need for hospitalization of patients during the step up dosing? Uh, I think probably the three of you have had experience with some of these antibody. I don't know who wants to, to, to start with that. Uli? Uh, yeah, we have some experience with both, with uh, a first-line chemo combination. We had some uh, spectacular responses, uh, but we also had, for instance, uh, one elderly patient uh, who is really suffering from this treatment. I mean, I mean did not re uh, is in response, but did not recover after the third, uh, third cycle. Um, so very active, but uh, so this patient uh, had to be admitted, uh, particularly uh, for for some um, kidney problems, etc. Not not only CRS. And then we've seen one uh, post CAR T cell patients patient uh, receiving glofitumab, uh, also spectacular response, but after the first infusion. Um, neurotoxicity uh, quite heavily. So, so I think those are weapons and we, we really have to learn how to use them. Nirav, any insight regarding the uh, current step-up dosing and uh, the potential need for hospitalization with some of these agents? Do you see uh, this as, a, as an obstacle for the pickup of these drugs in the community? Do you think this is uh, are more or less predictable from your experience? How, how do you fall through yeah. the use of these drugs? So, um, you know, right now, a lot of it is protocol driven. And so patients are hospitalized. I think going forward for this to be a clinically meaningful therapy that can be given in, in the community, you know, by doctors who are treating not just, you know, lymphoma like us here, but multiple histologies of cancers, they're going to have to really tease out um, the toxicity and safety management and have nice algorithms in place. You know, all of us work at tertiary referral centers where, you know, we can easily admit a patient and have inpatient services that can monitor for CRS. Um, you know, like Uli, I have used this actually in combination frontline and gave it to a very fit gentleman in his 50s. Uh, he got had an incredibly difficult time uh, with this regimen. He got cytokine release syndrome, um, required tocilizumab, developed PEs, was hospitalized three times. He's in CR, and I think he's going to get through this now. He just got his last cycle. But um, I thought to myself, you know, if this guy was even 10 years older, uh, this therapy might have crushed him uh, compared to, you know, standard RCHOP, uh, which we can give in the community up to 80, 85, without even thinking much about it, you know, with growth factor support. So I, I think, you know, this is a new evolution uh, in the lymphoma space. And, you know, obviously these drugs, you know, the committee doctors will want to use them, but I think it's going to be important for us to really define how to give them, what combinations are saved, and really have um, a setup. You know, I, I think that these community centers are going to have to have sort of either admitting abilities or 24-hour 
sort of around the clock uh, services like we all do, you know, so that when they have that fever, they can be admitted and uh, be given things like tocilizumab quickly. Sheila, you know, in, in, in our practice, we've actually positioned our bispecific antibodies kind of right with our CAR T cell program. And so use them kind of in combination. So I think the points that are being made are, are important because you need the access, you need the folks familiar with the side effects and toxicities. So I think if you move to a practice where that isn't a usual event where those kind of facilities are available, I think there's going to be a greater amount of education needed and awareness to really be on top of those type of toxicities. Yes, I think uh, we, we, we understand that. And I think uh, all these points are, are, are well taken. And thank you, all of you, for, for sharing your experience and your organizational steps that you have taken in order to uh, uh, bring these new agents uh, 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 to more patients, knowing that right now we are still in uh, clinical trials and trying to uh, better understand what is the optimal scheme of uh, dose escalation, uh, what are the potential combinations, and obviously, we look forward to see uh, what are the consolidated results that we can see because the follow-up is uh, at best 12 to 18 months for some of them, uh, but really uh, uh, rather in the, in the range of six to eight months in median for, for the other ones. So we, we, we don't have the follow-up that we have with many other agents. Um, covering this field of uh, uh, immune-based therapies and leaving aside the antibody drug conjugates that we will uh, 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 touch upon much later, uh, any further insight regarding uh, the use of uh, 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 monoclonal antibodies alone or in combination? There were some data regarding the uh, uh, update of uh, uh, obinutuzumab land with atezolizumab. There were some data regarding the update of the uh, uh, L-mine standing combining uh, tafacitamab plus uh, uh, lenalidomide. What are your take on message from these studies or others that I haven't uh, 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 mentioned? Uli, do you want to start with that? Uh Yes, so um, I think for the tafacitamab, it's pretty clear that uh, I think that's a good combination with uh, with lenalidomide, and of course it's a CD19 antibody. So so we add another uh, dimension to the usual CD20 uh, treatments. Um, I I'm uh, still pretty impressed with that possibility for elderly patients, for instance. I think that's good. Uh, Regarding the um, uh, introduction of checkpoint inhibitors, I'm not so sure where we're going at. Uh, I think uh, there it's more a question of defining the patients who will profit most from this type of treatment, uh, because not every diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, for instance, will profit from it. Uh, so or, or, same goes for the, uh, for the lower-grade lymphomas. But I... Uh, I think um, the verdict is not out for the checkpoints. Steve, checkpoint inhibitors has been a, a, a topic where you have invested a lot of uh, efforts and uh, contributed to, to bring these drugs to, to our field, not, uh, especially in Hodgkin lymphoma. What are you feeling regarding the development of uh, immune checkpoints in other uh, uh, lymphoid malignancies? Do you, do, you, do you see something really emerging as uh, um, new and, and really striking that uh, should we that we should move forward. 
Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, the points are important, and that is that uh, immune checkpoint blockade, when you simply are just taking away an inhibitory signal, because that's in essence what we're doing, you're assuming that the cells are ready to go and are able to then, with taking away the inhibitory signal, have an immediate activation and direct it against the, the tumor clone. And I think what we're finding in T cell uh, and, and B cell lymphomas broadly large cell lymphoma, follicular, the T cells are really not that ready to go. And when you just simply take away an inhibitory signal, they're not really all you know, focused and able to target the tumor in an effective fashion. I think what we're going to need to see in the future is that you're going to need to give a promoting signal and then prevent these inhibitory signals subsequently. So either a agonistic approach, a bispecific antibody, additional kind of viral therapy, vaccine approaches, but something that will actually trigger the immune system and then prevent the inhibition. So I think uh, that's an area that's only really getting started to be explored. I do agree with uh, Uli that I think one of the things we always need to be is really critical and rigorous in our research. So when if we think this is not an effective approach, we have so many things to do. We need to set things aside and not become completely focused on always doing the same thing. But I do think that if we're looking at lymphomas in general, most of them are going to need something agonistic at the same time as trying to inhibit the inhibitory signal to really get a good response. Thank you. Let's move to um, cellular therapy, unless uh, uh, Nira, you have something to, to add regarding uh, antibodies? Uh, no, I, I think um, Steve and Uli did a great job. Um, like Uli said, I think um, with the Elmine data, I was just uh, promising to see a tail uh, on that with the long-term follow-up that they provided, um, albeit, you know, a selected sort of patient population they worked with, right? Really second-line therapy, not the multiply relapsed uh, that we're used to putting on clinical trials. But, but there might be a place uh, for that regimen, uh, you know, for select older patients that are CAR auto-ineligible. Well, maybe I can jump in and ask Gilles the question, seeing he's getting to ask all the questions today. Uh, do, you think, do you think we're going to cure anybody, Gilles, with the L-mine, you know, L-mine data and with the tapacitamide uh, plus LEN? Do you think that tail is, is, a, is a curative tail like we've seen with other, other immune therapies? Yes, frankly speaking, it's uh, obviously difficult to, to, to decide. But when you see a patient with relapsed DLBCL, that had failed one or two lines of therapy and who has been in complete response after an immune intervention for more than one year, I believe that this is likely that this patient is being cured. Um, we have had discussions regarding the uh, uh, maintenance phase of these trials, which I feel is too prolonged and probably uh, unnecessary, frankly speaking. I think that uh, the uh, one-year combination is fine. Maybe it can even be shortened in terms of land exposure. But after that, uh, when a patient has been in uh, complete response for six to 12 months, um, maintaining a CD19 pressure, although this is part of the paradigm with CAR T cell, may be unnecessary. But um, I, I had patients in this uh, trial in my former institution, which I left uh, uh, one year ago, and these patients were on study for three, four years and were in complete response. So I believe they are cured. Uh, uh, one of these patients may have been in second line. The second was really in third line, refractory to RDIOX. So I think it's really uh, a chance for them. 
It's a limited proportion of patients, I believe, but they exist. So let's move to cellular therapy. And uh, uh, during this meeting, we heard a, a, a couple of updates regarding uh, uh, the role of cellular therapy in follicular lymphoma with the presentation of the uh, uh, final result of the ELARA study. Uh, we heard some uh, uh, data regarding uh, uh, the ZUMA5 study in follicular, also some data regarding uh, 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 the use of cellular therapy in mantle cell, and some updates from uh, a real life study. Maybe I start with you, Nirav, because you have been uh, heavily invested in this field also. Um, what, what, what's your take on message that you will take regarding uh, uh, cellular therapy uh, uh, during the spring's meetings? Um, you know, it, it works. <laughs> it continues to work. And uh, we're only uh, extending the histologies now, right? So obviously the approval was most needed in DLBCL. It's an aggressive disease. We needed to move quick. Those approvals happened. Uh, now we're extending this to the other histologies. And, and you know, I think the question for me is going to be, you know, in diseases like follicular in particular is there are a lot of treatments and uh, because there are a lot of treatments, you know, you may not actually need to jump to CAR right away. And in SUMA 5, you know, while a very effective therapy, there was considerable toxicity. Um, what I found differently was um, in the Alara trial was that, you know, if my memory serves me correct, there really wasn't any grade three uh, CRS or neurotoxicity. And so that could be a game changer if that's really the case that a 41BB CAR um, in an indolent histology can provide that long-term benefit without the, the side effect profile. Because for me, in diseases like follicular, uh, the goal of the game is not always necessarily curious to keep them at a high quality of life. Um, and I treat it more like hypertension, right? You know, be able to manage it, live your life, um, and not necessarily, you know, we have to give you all the big weapons ahead of time. Um, but I think the consistent message is that CAR T cells are uh, an important treatment uh, in the entire landscape of all the lymphomas. We're going to keep getting approvals in, in other histologies with newer products. And, and the real question, I think, outside of DLBCL is when is the right time to use these therapies, given the long-term risk of lifelong B-cell aplasia, which we don't understand how that may uh, impact people's long-term immune health, uh, and with other drugs like biospecifics, which also look best in follicular lymphoma, you know, is where do we place CAR? Is it a last-line therapy uh, when we've exhausted all the oral agents and things that can keep people at home? Um, or do we do it earlier or maybe in younger people, right? Those patients with 30 and 40 year olds with follicular lymphoma, uh, you know, do we use these earlier? But, but I think those uh, to me are the main questions and I'd be interested to hearing what C Steve and Uli thought as well. So Uli, you have also been uh, heavily invested in the, in the field of cars. What, what, what were your main messages that you have taken from uh, the different presentations that we heard and maybe focusing for the time being on follicular and we'll come to other histologies later. So uh, in direct response to Miraf, I think one of the major questions will be uh, where can we place the cars in uh, respect to the autologous stem cell uh, transplant? I mean, is, is the POT24 population, is that the ideal population which I think would probably be one of the first targets, of course. Um, and, um, and then we'll, we'll see where, where it's going. But uh, I think what we'd really like to see is a head-to-head -head comparison with, with ASCP in, in the younger patients. And, and then, I mean, I still like the, the SUMA 5 presentation um, by 
by John Grieben, uh, who uh, who showed that the Scola 5 uh, data compared to conventional treatment really uh, are much less impressive than, than the cars. So I, uh, I personally think we, we have good tools. Uh, we've used only the, the TISA cell for follicular lymphomas and, uh, and the lysa cell. And with both of them, we had almost no toxicity. Yeah. So we, ha we don't have experience with the, with the AXI in this respect. So Steve, um, do you foresee that potentially in follicular lymphoma, this will be a one-time treatment with some of these CAR T cells that will uh, uh, be uh, uh, delivered to patients which are not heavily symptomatic, uh, you may not need bridging, uh, it could be potentially ambulatory in some patients and after the uh, in immediate follow-up periods, they will be uh, 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 well, or, or do you foresee obstacles to the development of uh, uh, this uh, therapy in those patients? Well, I think first thing I would say is that, you know, over time, as we get used to using agents, we get better at doing it. And if you think of initial CAR T-cell studies and the toxicities and subsequent CAR T-cell studies, we get better and better at knowing how to anticipate, how to manage, and how to kind of really get people through the treatment in the best and most effective fashion. My personal view is that I think CAR T cell therapy may be a game changer completely in follicular lymphoma. And the reason is if we see a tail like we're seeing in large cell lymphoma, where potentially patients with follicular lymphoma are in fact cured with CAR T cell therapy, that may change exact completely how we think about CAR T cells. And we may instead try and work out how to give it to people with a view of curing them of them of their cancer and having it stay gone. And obviously, as Zinderab said, we have to kind of be cognizant of toxicities and the price we may pay. But I would anticipate that over time, we'll work out how to do it better and safer. And if that's the case, I see this completely changing how we manage follicular lymphoma and possibly mantle cell lymphoma as well. Yes, I, I share your, your, your prospects, and I, I was fairly impressed. We, we treated a lot of patients in, uh, I mean, not a lot, but the many patients, I will say, before I, I left France, and we, we started also to use uh, those in, in follicular lymphoma. And, um, it goes quite well as long as you don't have patients with a huge tumor bulk and tra probably transformed or, or with occult transformation. And some patients went really uh, um, uneventful treatment uh, and I felt this will really change the way we see patients. There were some also interesting results regarding the treatment of patients in the Zuma 5 trial. There were 13 patients with relapse, 11 of them were follicular. All of them have uh, uh, maintained CD19 expression. And I think nine of these 11 patients reached a second CR, which I feel is impressive. Obviously, we don't have the follow-up uh, for this patient, but the expansion of CAR were found to be uh, 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 identical almost to uh, the first expansion. And even if you have to repeat it, it's, it's quite impressive. I know one of these patients, and it's, uh, it was fairly amazing to see uh, uh, the response with a smaller tumor volume, which uh, probably explains uh, the lack of toxicity. We are seeing- Jill, Jill, can, can, I, can I make a comment uh, regarding the transformation? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that's also an interesting point because even in the, uh, in the aggressive lymphomas, the transformed follicles do very well compared to the others. So, so if, 
But the question is really, if we use it early, can we even uh, avoid transformation in some of these patients? Oh, that's Sorry. an interesting uh, topic. <laughs> I, I was going a little bit to the field of uh, uh, new cars. And, and, and Iran, I know you, you survey this field very closely. Um, we were all expecting to see uh, 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 buy specific cars coming or improved cars coming. What have you seen during these meetings regarding these uh, advances uh, 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 that we are looking forward? And you may further extend, and, and, and we may further discuss early result with uh, allogenic car uh, uh, also. What, what, what are your take on messages from these uh, uh, meetings? Yeah, um, so, you know, I, I think that the car technology, you know, just like everything else is going to advance. I mean, we have these uh, first three cars, which are, you know, incredible advances in the field. Uh, but I think there's room to be improved. Uh, you know, we've seen data over the years coming for a variety of bi-specific cars. So cars targeting 19 and 22 uh, combinations, they're using uh, that car in combination with the PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, we've seen data on 2019 cars, which are obviously, you know, very reasonable in, in the NHL. Uh, spectrum. Uh, and most recently, we're seeing the allogene cars, which, you know, are anti-CD19 off-the-shelf product. And, uh, you know, again, early data, limited follow-up. I mean, I think my, my biggest question with an allo product is that, is durability, uh, you know, because one would imagine that these allo cars are less likely to persist uh, for the patient's lifetime. Although the whole question of persistence does seem to uh, depend on the histology that you're treating, uh, maybe more meaningful in diseases like ALL and less so in our aggressive uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Uh, I think the question is, though, is dual targeting uh, going to be better than single targeting? And, you know, there are large trials undergoing. I think you're aware of, uh, Jill, that uh, I believe you guys are participating in with us. And, uh, you know, I think we'll start to see those questions being answered. Uh, we know from tumor biopsies that about a third of patients do lose CD19, at least in aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, but I don't think we fully understand the mechanisms of relapse uh, with CAR T-cell therapy, and I think it's quite complex. Um, but I think that the field is going to evolve. The number of allocars cars being produced is incredible. Uh, and the one advantage is no manufacturing. And uh, I've had over the years now several manufacturing failures, even uh, with the commercial products. And so having a drug available off the shelf, if they can prove durability uh, and similar efficacy, I think could be a game changer as well. Steve, your insight regarding uh, uh, CAR T-cell therapy and, uh, and how uh, we uh, uh, see the field moving. And uh, I, I just see that during the time we speak, there are some... Uh, Again, public announcement of uh, uh, a second randomized trial in the uh, 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 setting of uh, relapsed DLBCL being uh, uh, positive. But Steve, your insight from what we have got during these meetings. Yes, I think some of the points that were made are, are really important. Um, you know, one is the, the actual cell that you're going to use in CAR T cells, you know, whether it be a T cell, NK cell, and the merits thereof, whether it's your own cells or somebody else's so that it can come off the shelf. I think that obviously is, is really relevant. And then how many targets and how protected your T-cell is. So what's it going to bind to and how quickly could the CAR T-cell be switched off? All of those, I think, are, are critical factors. There's a part of me that in my head kind of wonders how important is the persistence issue? Because in some respects, you only have to cure people once. <clears throat> in other words, if you got rid of every single cancer cell, 
It doesn't need to persist thereafter. The problem is, unfortunately, if all you're doing with the CAR T cells is kind of corralling and controlling, then obviously you need to maintain cells. So I think as we come to understand those concepts better, that will really help us know how to, uh, to best optimize the therapy because it may be different for each of the different histologies kind of as we move forward. We may want to go full out, take a lot of risk in some diseases and then be much more modest and careful uh, in others. So I think, um, uh, you know, as we just said, there's so many different uh, studies ongoing at this point. This is going to be a field that is really only in its infancy right now. And we're going to see new data probably with every single meeting for the next many years. Steve, another comments regarding mantle cell lymphoma in particular? Do you have uh, any insight on, on, on the update of the uh, Zuma 2 studies and the comparison with real-life data that were presented during these meetings? You know, I, I must say I, I was really interested and excited in, in the data in mantle cell, you know, because commonly when we use or think about using CAR T cells are in a disease where really you have op limited options. So in our practice, we tend to use a pretty aggressive approach in the beginning, an autologous transplants. And then when people relapse after that, the tools that remain, uh, particularly when we start to see more P53 mutant types and more kind of a blastoid variant, it's proving to be a very difficult population. So when you see efficacy, even if your efficacy ends up being tempered a little bit as you move toward the kind of, you know, real world scenario. I think if you can get those people in durable remissions, that is a huge advance. So I remain a big fan of utilizing CAR T cells in the appropriate population in mantle cell. Uli, um, there were a couple of uh, real life data coming up during uh, uh, these meetings. Um, when any of these study really uh, striking uh, uh, for you or providing uh, uh, new results regarding the, the management of patients and the outcome of patients that were treated uh, 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 with CAR T cell outside of clinical trials? Actually, yes. Uh, my, my favorite abstract at IHA was the French uh, Descartes uh, study, to be very honest. Uh, Stephen Legill uh, uh, presented that and, and The number is impressive, 550 patients received CARs with the two commercially available products. And what I uh, really like there is the high and response rates and durable responses. Uh, you probably know better than I do, but I think there is some selection involved in, in how the French colleagues uh, treat these patients. And that, to my mind, that's probably the way to go because uh, then we're using the product Uh, resourceful and uh, so I really like that. The, the downside that uh, Steve also mentioned is that if you select too much uh, then you may miss those few patients who are uh, rapidly progressing and in a terrible lymphoma state so to speak when they come to the cars but still one third or 25% of those will have long-term responses. So, so I think that's what I liked most about this presentation. Let's think about um, careful selection. Yes, I think that's uh, obviously an important question with CARs. Uh, the, the best patient responds better, those with low tumor volume, with normal LDH, and they benefit well of CAR. They might eventually benefit of other kind of therapy, and the worst patient with uh, altered performance status, rapidly growing disease or high LDH have less benefit, but some of them 
uh, may have a benefit still. So I think it's a, it's a balance of selection and it's not always a, a, an easy choice. And uh, 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 we are probably having many discussions in our institutions now that these products are routinely available for each patient that uh, uh, doesn't fit in the ideal uh, uh, category, whether we should pursue with car or, or whether we should uh, uh, leave them aside. Um, I think we have been through uh, uh, cellular therapies, but uh, uh, besides this uh, uh, bispecific and cellular therapies, a few new agents are, are, are coming in the field or a few new pathways have been uh, uh, identified and we may have heard results uh, uh, here and there regarding uh, new ADCs or the optimal use of ADCs. Uh, targeted therapy in T-cell lymphoma that represented also in Lugano or other meetings, and maybe other uh, uh, drugs that uh, I may have uh, uh, missed or other combinations. Um, Nirav, do you have one of these uh, presentations that really particularly was interesting for you and that you would like to, to, uh, to underline? Uh, sure. You know, um, we have worked with uh, the, the new BTK inhibitor, pitrobrutinib, uh, LOXA 305. And uh, it's it's different than the irreversible BTK inhibitors that we're familiar with, uh, being ACAL and XAN and ibrutinib, which um, obviously have different levels of cell activity, but mechanistically work the same and, and from a resistance pattern have a similar resistance pattern uh, within them. And so uh, this is a novel BTK inhibitor, it's non-covalent, uh, and it is very selective for the BTK kinome. And, um, you know, we have treated a lot of people at our center with this agent and, and been involved with this development and, and really um, has the potential to be a game changer, I think, in the BTK field. Uh, reason why is it was efficacious in those that failed irreversible BTK inhibitors, something we wouldn't really see, um, you know, if you fail ibrutinib, that we don't think ACAL or XAM would work. Um, and two, the toxicity profile that we're always used to hearing about, uh, uh, really no AFib, no bleeding, um, and the discontinuation rate in a very large study was actually quite low. Uh, there are several trials that they have now positioned themselves to go actually head to head against both chemotherapy and, and, and the you know, earlier generations of BTK inhibitors, but uh, it goes to show that there's still advances to be made in the field. And, and I think this is going to be a very exciting drug um, that will work across histologies, mostly CLL and mantle cell. Yes, thank you. That's really a, a, an exciting field. And, and we see that uh, even if the first BTK inhibitors were here probably like uh, now six, seven years ago, we, we are continuing to make progress. And this is interesting. Steve, uh, any new agents that really uh, uh, focus your attention during this meeting and uh, that you would like to comment for us? You know, for me, I'm always kind of keeping my eyes open for things that work in T-cell lymphomas because, you know, that's always kind of like a bit of a wasteland. And uh, we've got all this exciting data that we just spoke about in B-cell lymphomas, but in T-cell lymphomas, it's kind of like uh, not that great. So, Quite frankly, uh, I don't think there were that many new things, but combination approaches, looking at different PI3 kinase, other immune modulatory agents, I think uh, some, some interesting data there, some JAK-specific therapies with some promise. And then I think RAW1 is another target that may be very interesting in T-cell lymphomas. So I think these are things that I'm watching. I think the data is sort of still coming along, but we desperately need agents that are going to make an impact in T-cell lymphoma like we're appreciating in B-cell lymphomas. So um, 
I think at this point, we're still kind of optimistically keeping our eye on the field, but uh, nothing dramatic, I would say, at this point. I don't know if Uli would like to comment on uh, Valemeto's stat or if I should pursue yeah. on that, but uh, I yeah. think uh, this was an agent that was presented in the oral session in Lugano, which is a dual inhibitor of EZH1 and EZH2 mm -hmm. that was uh, uh, developed in Japan, but also with several centers uh, in, in the US, including here, uh, my colleague Steve Horvitz, and uh, it's been developed also in, in combination in uh, other places. I think the response rate that was seen in uh, uh, patients with uh, uh, different subtypes of uh, T-cell lymphoma, including some patients with ATL, some patients with ATLL, and others, was fairly impressive. I think we were in the range of 50%, which is a little mm -hmm. bit higher from what we used to see with novel agent. And uh, I think the patients that achieved a, a response had a duration of response that was in the range of 50 weeks. So it seems like we have here an agent that uh, uh, maybe focus on, uh, on, on uh, uh, some T-cell entities and may have a meaningful efficacy. Obviously, we need to see more data on the safety. There were some uh, 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 concern or, or, or side effect, including thrombocytopenia of grade three or more uh, that eventually led to a, 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 a treatment uh, a discontinuation or interruptions. But I think this is an interesting agent, probably difficult to combine given this heme toxicity profile, but uh, uh, really an attractive agent. Uli, what, what, what was your take-home message in terms of new agents or new pathways that, that we have got from this meeting? Uh, I mean, you are the ECH1, ECH2 expert. <laughs> You've done trials with this agent, so, so I don't want to comment on, on this one. But uh, maybe it, it was not only the new drugs, but uh, the ECH2 inhibitor also appeared in an abstract uh, that um, uh, tried to personalize treatment uh, according to the genetic uh, subtypes or molecular subtypes. Uh, so RCHOP plus eggs, and one of the eggs uh, was the ECH2 inhibitor uh, together with the BTK inhibitor, etc. So I, I found that approach uh, interesting that we can try to tailor uh, treatment according to the molecular data. And, and, and there... Um, there were actually two abstracts uh, in, in this respect. And I, I found that possibility of using even agents that are, let's say, not licensed for a certain indication uh, quite interesting if we can combine that uh, in a more personalized approach. That, that, that were actually some of my favorites in, in these two meetings. Thank you for that. I think we are close for the time to, to, to close this uh, uh, session regarding the uh, feedback of these uh, uh, different meetings. Maybe I give you one minute to each of you uh, if you have any other further comments uh, uh, regarding what we heard or what we have seen, maybe therapeutic, maybe diagnosis, maybe a biological study or new insights regarding how we uh, uh, manage patients with lymphoma. Nirav, any particular uh, uh, topics that you would like to, to, to take and bring forward? 
what I think, you know, just to summarize, you know, uh, everything that we talked about today, that number one, uh, lots of excitement in the field. Uh, new drugs are going to change our algorithm. And, and I think that to me is the biggest question moving forward is where do we place these different drugs and the different histologies and, and what is the appropriate sequencing? Uh, something that I think we need to talk about more is what is the appropriate combinations and, and what therapy should we be using when. Uh, I find that really, if you go across the country, you know, we're center specific and we all do things very, very differently. And so I, I look forward to getting a better understanding uh, of how to use these agents moving forward. Um, you know, going back to the bi-specifics, you know, I think the one data set that we didn't really talk about was the single agent frontline efficacy in older patients, um, you know, which I thought looked very promising, you know, as a a single immune therapy uh, to give to patients um, that potentially, again, you know, that durability question remains in question uh, that's unanswered at this time, but, but potentially something that could change um, how we treat uh, that patient population. Uh, but I, I think, you know, we're getting better at uh, developing drugs with less toxicity and more efficacy. I think we have to just figure out what is the uh, right sequence and when to use these therapies efficaciously uh, to get the best outcomes for our patients. Thank you. Steve, you, you, you take a message. So I think, uh, yeah, we, you know, we, like we, yeah, well, what I think I, I, for me is, is really important. We've got all these really exciting tools but as you can tell, none of them work 100% of the time. So it really would be nice to know who's benefiting and who's not. And so the, the plenary session at ICML, I thought uh, Brian Sorder's presentation on cell-free DNA approaches to monitor CAR T-cell responses, I think are really going to be a useful tool, that strategy of working out who's benefiting from therapy uh, as we move along. I think obviously even being able to use ways in which we can identify people who are likely to benefit more than others in a more kind of a biological way, I think is where I am excited about the field going. So I think right in parallel with all these exciting novel strategies for treatment, ways in which we can really monitor benefit uh, and anticipating who's uh, gonna do best with what treatment, that's gonna help us use the treatment in an intelligent way. So ctDNA and uh, uh, really other tool to, to monitor patients in the future. Uli, any uh, uh, other comments uh, before we conclude? Uh, yeah, so uh, you've guy, you guys have said it almost all, so I have no, I can only agree. Uh, one thing that, that may come up and that's interesting in the field uh, were the, the mouse and animal data on the degrading agents. So that's a new technology that, that may uh, serve as an interesting tool in the future. Uh, let's say not target um, um, pathways, uh, target pathways, but indirectly by degrading some of the proteins. So I, I thought that was quite exciting also. Yes, I think we, we see a couple of uh, preclinical data suggesting that the level of inhibition of some kinases uh, uh, looks more potent using uh, degraders that pull down the protein rather than kinase inhibitor and eventually avoid some reactions. But uh, these uh, uh, drugs, which are uh, often actually uh, uh, macromolecules, are, are coming slowly into the clinics. They came already in uh, uh, solid tumors, but uh, they will come very soon in, in, in our field. 
Yes, I think there were many other uh, uh, topics that we didn't have time to cover today. I found also at ICML uh, uh, sessions regarding what uh, artificial intelligence could bring us in terms of uh, analyzing uh, uh, pathology, in terms of uh, uh, using some uh, genomic data or building synthetic arms for uh, 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 some studies quite interesting and uh, fascinating field uh, uh, to try to catch up for us uh, 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 for the progress that can be help us to a better personalized treatment. I would like to thank you all for uh, uh, your comments regarding these uh, three meetings. Uh, we had really a, a nice uh, uh, overview of this uh, very rapidly moving and uh, fascinating field. I think many of these programs will uh, reach patients uh, uh, pretty soon and will continue will make progress. As I said, sequencing this agent will be a real challenge and we need better tools to understand that. Uh, but I think that we are, we are aiming for. So thank you again to SVU. Thank you for VG Mom for having organized this uh, uh, session. And I hope that uh, in the near future, we'll have the opportunity to see each other in person rather than uh, uh, virtually uh, uh, to come on the next uh, uh, upcoming hematology meetings. Thank you and wishing you all a very nice day. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemonk.com for cutting-edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all the latest news in the field of lymphoma. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.